Welcome to another classic episode of the Good Line Podcast. In this episode from season three, my co-host Brian Higgins and I sit down with one of our favorite guests and actually the guest who has appeared the most on the show, uh, Dr. Gary Brashears. We have an in-depth conversation about God's judgment and his wrath and how that relates to the problem of evil. We dive into questions like why does God seem so violent in the Old Testament and yet so loving in the New Testament? Why did Ananias and Sapphira have to die? And we even look at Greg Boyd's cruciform hermeneutic and ask, is that a good way to read and interpret scripture or does it cause some troubling issues? So we dive into this stuff with Gary. Gary is a brilliant seminary professor from Western Seminary. He's actually my professor, which I'm so blessed to be able to say. He's a great friend. I think you're going to find him so insightful and so helpful. This is a very challenging topic that is near and dear to my heart, and it's one that we've covered a lot on this show, and I think this episode is one of the best times that we dove into it. So with that, let's get into this classic episode of the Good Lion Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Good Lion Podcast. I'm Aaron Salvato, and today I am joined with, of course, my co-host, Brian Higgins, and our very special guest, Gary Brashears. It's his second time on the show. We're so excited to have him back. He is an amazing theological mind. Gary has been a professor of theology at Western Seminary since 1980. He teaches at many colleges and seminaries around the world and is a pastor to pastors. Today, we're going to hit Gary with a lot of hard questions like, why does God seem more violent in the Old Testament and more loving in the New Testament? And how can Yahweh and Jesus be the same God? We're going to analyze Greg Boyd's hermeneutic of how to read the violent Old Testament passages. And we're going to dive into two really difficult stories about people God killed, Uzzah in the Old Testament and Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. These are incredibly difficult passages, and I'm so glad Gary was able to help us walk through them. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it because Brian and I sure did. So to kick off the episode, here's my good friend, Brian Higgins. Aaron and I are very fortunate to be here talking with, I don't know if you want to be introduced as the man, myth, and legend, <laughs> but that's where my mind went first. I'm old enough to be a legend, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Aaron and I are feeling very fortunate. As we go through this podcast, a lot of what we're creating is us thinking things through together and kind of bouncing ideas off of one another. And to sort of speak for Aaron and to definitely speak for myself, I think one of the most fun conversations we got to have uh, was bringing in uh, the wisdom and experience and the intellect of Gary Brashears. And we are really excited to be able to do that again today. Gary, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing really well. Awesome. Awesome. When you say wit and wisdom, it says, yeah, he's an old guy. I mean, who would pay attention to him? Yeah. <laughs> no. We're so excited to have you. We've had you on before. You're a professor at Western Seminary. You're a huge influence mm -hmm. on so many guys who are huge influences to us. And uh, by extension, uh, we've been following you for a while. You're uh, You help with the Bible Project. Is that correct? I do. Very cool. 
I was uh, I was part of the Bible project before there was a Bible project, <laughs> and I'm still part of it. So it's just it's a blast to see what's happening with that. Yeah, they're doing a great job. They they have done so much to shape how I I think about the Bible and and even visualize the Bible. The videos are so embedded in my mind. So thank you for being a part of that project, and thank you for being a part of this project, this podcast. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it, Gary. Today we are bringing okay. questions. <laughs> the water's deep down here in this end of the pool. <laughs> yes, very deep. And mm-hmm. we understand, like we said in the last episode, the goal is not to come to you and get the perfect answers. It's not to say, yeah. you know, Gary, solve all the problems in the Bible for us right now in an hour-long interview. But it's just to have a discussion. And, and we so value discussion on this show, being able to talk through some of the difficult parts of scripture. Because I just, I feel like there's a lot of people who grow up in the church and for a time, I mean, this is my story, there's this kind of puppy love phase where you just kind of have this idea of the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't need to ask any questions. I don't need to think about anything. And for a lot of people, they reach a point where that doesn't last and questions start popping up. And a lot of times those questions can lead to doubt and discouragement. And I've found as a youth pastor, as someone who works with young adults, that letting questions just sit and not be addressed can really manifest doubt in people and cause them to even walk away from the faith. So at this show, we really want to be okay with questions, to be able to ask them and think through them. Very, very, very high priority to me is there's no question that's out of league except the question that really isn't a question. It's an accusation. That's what Satan does. Mm. But if anything that you wrestling with. I mean, that's what shipwrecked me way back when, mm. was I was in a spot where questions, real questions, were not allowed. Mm. And uh, But coming back and discovering, uh, you know, the questions actually are where the learning happens if you're open to being taught, and that's the key. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, that's such a great mm. point. That's such a reversal, I think, for so many people, where the idea in, in most minds, I think, is faith is being able to endure by not asking questions. And I, I love this reversal of real faith is what stands for us on the other side of our questions. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I just say one of my things is is dare to go into the deep, mm. but in the deep, it means your feet are not touching the bottom. Mm. Uh, that's where the riches is, but it means your feet aren't touching the bottom and you can dare to do that. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a challenge, but that's where the riches are. Mm, that's really, really good. That will definitely be the name of this series of episodes with you. <laughs> Daring into the, Daring into the <laughs> that's a good book title right there. Well, <laughs> jumping right into the deep, one of the questions that comes up a lot is the discrepancy and the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament depiction of God. And we're going to have a, a wider conversation today about Bible characters. Uzza, I think, is that how you pronounce it? Is it Uzza or Uzza? Mm-hmm. Uzza? Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Uzza. And- I use Uzza. Yeah. Uzza sounds like a whiskey or something. Yeah. <laughs> So Uzzah and then Ananias and Sapphira. But mm-hmm. today to start off with, let, I just want to ask this question. Why does there appear to be a difference between the God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? In the Old Testament, you have this depiction of God as violent, uh, wrathful, vengeful. He floods the entire world, kills everybody but one family. There's 
multiple genocides, calls in the book of Joshua and other Old Testament books for Israel to go and wipe out entire nations and peoples. And then in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and you could never see him, you know, drowning anybody. You could never see him calling for the disciples to commit genocide. He's he's about peace, love, forgiveness, love your enemies, even some would say, you know, this radical call to nonviolence. And so many people out there, non-Christians and Christians alike, ask the question, how can this really be the same God? Well, I mean, my first response is the difference in the two are not nearly as great as you've described. Hmm. The the God of the Old Testament, uh, if the most common, the most quoted book in the Bible, by the Bible, uh, you know, the Bible quotes itself all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's one verse that's more quoted in the Bible than any other quote. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that is the most important verse in the Bible. In the New Testament, Psalm 110, but in the Bible as a whole, the most quoted verse is uh, Exodus 34, 6, 7. Mm-hmm. And the context there is Exodus, where God has brought the people out of Egypt. Uh, he's provided food and water. He's redeemed them, food and water. He's protected with the Amalekites. Uh, he's done all kinds of things. And Moses is up on the mountain getting instructions for the tabernacle so he can dwell among the people who are afraid of him. And while he's doing that, they do the golden calf. Right. And Aaron is the one that does this incredible, incredible betrayal. Mm. God is really upset. He and Moses have this incredible priestly interchange. And then in in the context of golden calf worshipers, God describes himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, does not visit, does not leave the guilty untouched. Right. And when I look at the characteristics of God there, it begins with compassion and grace. Mm. It goes on to faithfulness and love. It talks about forgiving. Mm. This is the God of the whole Bible, is this particular God. Mm. But he also gets angry. And frankly, most of the things that make him angry in the Old Testament make me angry today. Yeah, It's things like not taking care of widows or orphans. Mm. It's things like powering up on poor people. It's things like stealing uh, from the people who haven't the strength to protect themselves. Mm. It's things like we'd call sex trafficking. That makes God mad. And frankly, it makes me mad, too. Yeah. And it makes Jesus mad. Right. So at that level, there's a lot more continuity than the picture you put. But there is also a discontinuity you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the discontinuity can be felt by many people. It's it's present. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, this is an idea that I've been rolling around in my head for the last five or six years, and I'd I'd like to throw it out to you just to see if it has legs to stand on. So I, I think of a father who loves his children and wants to protect them, and a father, like we're talking about, gets angry when there are things that hurt the child. And so if that's our paradigm, you know, if we think of humanity as God's child and he hates sin and he wants to destroy sin and he wants to protect the child and going back to Adam and Eve, Genesis, after the fall happens, we're given this prophecy about a snake crusher from the very beginning. God has this plan. I'm going to rescue and redeem humanity. I'm going to save humans. And, And so when you're going through the Old Testament story and let's say, um, 
Israel is commanded to wipe out another nation. The way I used to read that when I was younger was God playing favorites with Israel and saying, oh, they're the ones I like. Everyone else can just, you know, they're bad. I'll destroy them. And I've even talked to other pastors and asked them, well, why did God kill this other country through Israel? But then Israel gets to live. And the answer has always been, or often the answer has been, Israel is good. They do good things. The other nation is bad. They do bad things. So it's just it's just punishment. But then when you read the books, books like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles and Kings, you're seeing all these stories about Israel doing the same things the pagan nations are doing. They're sacrificing their children. They're worshiping idols. All this stuff. So in in my mind, when God is commanding Israel to wipe out another nation, it's not Him playing favorites. It's it's this grace and compassion towards not just Israel, but the whole world, because he's protecting something. Israel is carrying the seed of the Messiah, Jesus. If Israel gets wiped out, I can't be saved in the future. You can't be saved in the future. The whole world can't be saved. So it's not divine right. favoritism in my mind towards one country. It's God saying, I've given this country something to carry. And so I'm protecting them at all costs for the sake of the whole world. That's kind of the paradigm I've I've been using to think through these things. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you're saying there because you do have the history and that you have to put the uh, the Deuteronomy 7 killing the Canaanites. I don't like calling genocide is a different mm. thing as we'll say. Mm. Okay. But the, the, the creating a safe neighborhood for the kids mm. where they don't have to worry about sex traffickers and drug smugglers and those kind of things. So he wants to create a neighborhood for his kids. But the prehistory is God began by calling all people and people said, no, we'd rather work with a serpent. Right. And so God wiped, God walked the earth clean to start over again, to try to get the wickedness out of it. And it immediately erupts back in again. Hmm. In Genesis 11, the nations, the Bab Babylonian story begins and people are going to reject God decisively. So God gives them over to gods of their choice, uh, to Moloch and Chemish and Baal, as it turns out. But he doesn't give up on them. Hmm. As you say, he selects one family to invest the seed in. Right. Uh, but then that family turns wicked too, and he's doing what he can to maintain them, despite the fact that they keep looking like the other nations. Hmm. So the goal is to get them into a safe neighborhood to where the temptations to be like the other nations are reduced so they're the people who are there are wicked but you're right the israelites maybe not as wicked but they're not good guys and later on they become just as wicked as hmm. as the canaanites yeah absolutely uh but part of what's happening there in in deuteronomy 7 and joshua there are big debates about this i hmm. uh, because he does say devote them to destruction or how you trans translate harm there hmm. I, I think John Walton uh, really has a good perspective on that, mm. that God is is not wiping out every man, woman, and child, though he does use that trash talk language in 1 Samuel 15. Right. Uh, he is eradicating. Well, John Walton used the analogy from World War II. The Allies were committed to wiping out Nazism, right. not the German nation. Right. Mm. And God's intent there is to destroy the gods of the other nations, just like he destroyed the gods of Egypt or attacked them. Hmm. And the thrust there in, De in Deuteronomy 7 is not the people, it's on the gods that they worship hmm. as his real enemy. Hmm. It's like Ephesians 6. So he's trying to write out uh, Baalism, yeah. to use a phrase. Right. Uh, and that's his focus. 
and so he he there are there are people killed and it is harsh but it's also very real right and he, he's he's protecting yeah. something he's protecting if, if yep. baalism yep. gets into israel they start worshiping baal they leave yahweh they're going to be destroyed and then once again the messiah can't be born so it's That's it's correct. this preservation of something valuable I can imagine one of the phrases that was interesting towards the beginning part of that answer was God protecting his kids and Israel being his kids and wanting to keep a safe neighborhood mm. for them. I, it's easy for me to imagine, well, God is the creator of all people, so, so shouldn't everyone count as his mm. kids? But from what you're saying about trying to eradicate the different isms they've fallen under, Baalism or whatever other God they were worshiping, it, it seems like all of the judgment is coming from a willful choice, almost a group of people shaking their fist at God and saying, you're not my dad. Mm, that's correct. Mm. And they're not, it's not just shaking their fist at God. It's joining the drug dealers and, and the sex drug operators in the neighborhood. Mm. And that's exactly what they're doing because the worship mm. of Baal, is in, it's a power theology. Mm. And we today, correctly, are very upset with power theologies. Mm. We're very upset at Harvey Weinstein and name your favorite political power person. (laughs) And we say that's not right to Mm. use your power to hurt others in privilege yourself. Mm. And that's exactly what Baalism is. And Moloch is even worse. And so it's people who will not be a part of God's family. They've left the family and joined the the mob, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I feel like it might be helpful to try to see then some of the linkage between this is... One of the things you pointed out is that the messaging of the Old Testament is not as different as the messaging of the New Testament. Can you point to a few places where you see this same kind of God is is violently against the other people who would try to rule you? Can you can you point to some of those spots in the New Testament, perhaps? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, one of them uh, in Matthew 25, for example. Well, let me use a different one. Luke 16 uh, we know the story is the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is the poor guy, uh, and uh, the the rich man who has no name in the story. But the other way, it would have been the other way around at the time. It would have, the rich guy would have been, you know, Judah, and the poor guy would have been the guy laying out on the street. God remembers the name of the poor guy, not the name of the rich guy. Uh, and everybody looks at that and says, "I want to be like the rich guy, not the poor guy." Uh, but then you read the rest of the story, and the rich guy is in Hades in torment, mm. being punished. He's still sinning. Mm. When he asks Abraham, he says, send Lazarus some water to cool my tongue. He's still seeing Lazarus an instrument of his cover, comfort. He's still sinning, mm. but he is in torment. And that's basically the same thing that's happening in the Old Testament. Mm. God doesn't kill him uh, the way you see the the Canaanites being killed in that one thing. But in the most cases, it's only in one, two cases that people are killed in the Old Testament mm. as a divine judgment, uh, where it's other nations. But the rich man in Lazarus, here's the power guy, and he is being punished severely for the sin in his life, which is ongoing. Right. Same idea. Mm. Details are different. Mm. And that's Jesus telling the story. Yes. So to say Jesus is always the man of peace and completely of nonviolence, I don't know how you can say that and read the rich man and Lazarus story. Right. Yeah. He's not letting the rich man off. He 
is clearly warning about judgment in so many parts of the New Testament. I think people have even said, I don't know if this this is accurate, but people have said that Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven even possibly. Is that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and hell per se is not a common feature in the Old Testament. Right. Uh, and Jesus has a lot to say about hell and pretty graphic descriptions of it. Right. So that kind of puts the stereotype on its head. When I go back to this idea of judgment with God, I really see a God of compassion who doesn't want anyone to go there. And You know, when I think of God, like you said, in Exodus, the most quoted verse in the Bible, identifying himself as compassionate and then lining that up with, you know, for God so loved the world. How does that work? You know, when he's just loving Israel, saving Israel, destroying Egypt, right? He's loving Israel, but he's wiping out the Egyptians. In my mind, the way I look at it is God sees the big picture and he realizes that what he's doing now by preserving and protecting Israel is going to create a world where Egyptians can be saved. A, a world where, you know. Well, see, I'd go a step back before that. Yeah. Uh, God just didn't destroy Egypt. He didn't just destroy Pharaoh. Hmm. Ten times he calls Pharaoh and urges him to repent. Yes, absolutely. And ten times, well, nine times, gives him miracles so strong that even the Egyptian magicians convert. Yeah, so It's true. not like so him true. just hmm. dropping some burning road tire on Pharaoh's head. He's being incredibly compassionate to Pharaoh. Yeah, he cares. Not to be sure, Pharaoh's saying no. Hmm. Yes, yeah, he cares about those other countries. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the clearest pictures we get of that is Nineveh. You know, this, yeah. this country in Assyria, you know, or this region in Assyria known for lining their city with their enemies shoved through stakes and you know obviously somebody by our standards deserving of destruction for their sin and then god sends jonah the reluctant prophet and i think that's probably not the only time god did that there's probably so many unwritten stories of god sending prophets and sending people to violent and wicked nations trying to rescue and redeem them so it's no. I think it's an incomplete picture when we just focus on the judgment and it, and when we detach right. the judgment from the whole picture story of what God That's is correct. trying to accomplish through through Jesus. Yep. So in the in the Canaanite thing, Rahab hears about them, joins them, mm. and is saved, becomes a part of the line of Messiah. Yeah. I'm wow. sure others did too. Mm. It's the ones who refused to do that. And to be sure, John three sixteen. We need to kind of put that in context too, mm. because the the next verse in John three sixteen it says he did not sin the world to condemn the world. But he says this: Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Mm. And that passage ends with verse thirty six, where it's talking about the one who rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Again, that's that's the portrait of Jesus. That's not that much different than the Old Testament. Mm. God will give himself for the worst sinner. Mm. Yeah. God will take the sin of the worst sinner into himself and die eventually at Calvary mm. for the sake of the absolute worst sinner. There's nobody who can't be saved mm. except the one who rejects it. Really good. So this isn't a wrathful, vengeful God. It's the one who comes with incredible compassion, but there's an end to it. There is a... There's a day of judgment, Mm. and uh, 
Frankly, I'm on the side looking at some of the evil that's going on in our world today. I want more judgment sooner, frankly. I really do. Mm. My deep cry is, how long, O oh Lord, will you put up with this? Which is a cry of Habakkuk and David and mm. the saints under the altar. And I keep saying, God, how long will you put up with this? Because I, I, I just see the evil. I see innocent people being terribly hurt by the serpent. Right. Yeah. It's like a, a cancer eating humanity and we want yeah. we want the surgeon to remove it it's the desire of our heart moving on from this is it's a good segue into the topic of greg boyd yeah so can you just give us a little bit of background on who greg boyd is he's got some views that i want to bring up but you could yeah. you could probably do better than me detailing who Greg is? Uh, well, Greg is Greg's. We're we're first name uh, folk. I I can't call Greg a friend just because we don't hang out that much together. Yeah, but I appreciate so much of what Greg does. Mm. I have my points of major difference. I'm not an open theist, mm. but a lot of what he was saying in the context of open theism, I very much appreciate. Mm. He's Anabaptist. My background is Anabaptist. Mm. We share that in common. Mm. He's a pacifist. I'm a pacifist, so we differ somewhat in the way we do that. Right. Uh, he, is, he is famous for saying America is not a Christian nation, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but his the book that uh, comes up here is his picture, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, hmm. or The Cruciform Vision of God. Right. And and that's a spot where I just... I deeply, deeply, deeply differ with Greg. Yes. Okay. Because uh, he's saying we need to view everything from the perspective of the cross and that says God never kills anybody. God, in fact, takes death into himself. Right. And that's the cruciform vision. And then he uses that lens to interpret the rest of the Bible. That's where I come to some disagreements. Right. Because I would feel like the way that he handles it is it's not so much a reframing of the Old Testament in light of the cross. It's almost a rewriting of the Old Testament. It is. It is. This is my assessment of what Boyd's view is. And I agree with you. I, I appreciate things about Boyd. My introduction to him was his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation. And uh, yeah. it just blew yeah. me away. It, it was so insightful. So I've followed him for years. I think he has a lot of good stuff to say. But then there's times where, like in this instance, I have to kind of really push back on it. And that's why we wanted to right. uh, bring this up on the episode. So his view, his starting point is Jesus is the revealed word of God, the ultimate right. revelation. It's the answer to the question, what is God like? God is like Jesus because Jesus is God revealed. So that's his starting point, I feel like. But then his conclusion is therefore... His conclusion is, therefore, any depiction of God in the Old Testament that doesn't perfectly line up with Jesus would then be inaccurate, which means that the Old Testament writers who wrote this depiction of God, killing people, unleashing judgment, plagues on Egypt, those sort of things, the depiction would then be wrong. The idea would be that the authors of the Old Testament were misinformed about God, and so they're blaming God for the actions of other humans, um, saying, oh, that was God that did that, or the action of pagan demon gods, because the idea that Greg puts forth is they were heavily influenced by the religions of the day. They would look at Baal and what Baal did and say, oh, that's what 
gods of our day do. So therefore, that's what Yahweh does. And so therefore, uh, when Jesus arrives, he sets the record straight. The Old Testament was wrong about God. Jesus is the only true depiction of him, a God who would never take a human life. Is that an, a correct assessment? And then what? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is, that's a good summary of what Greg is saying. Mm. And I think he seriously misinterprets Jesus mm. and uses that misinterpretation to do an even greater misinterpretation. Well, not like you say, it's actually a rewriting of the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that he points out that's an interesting thing is who is it kills the Egyptians in the Passover? And Greg makes a big point that in Exodus 12, 23, that it's the destroyer that does that. And he paints as if the destroyer is Satan. So God kind of gets out of the way, accommodates himself and lets Satan do it. Mm. But in that very verse, it says, I do this. Mm. Then he says, well, in the first half of the verse, it's it's uh, Israelite misunderstanding of God. The second half of the verse is correct understanding. It wasn't God, it was a daemon. But when you read it, the destroyer is God, the one who is slow to anger, who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Mm. Uh, the, one, of the, one of the reviews I read of Greg's books uh, is actually a Jewish fellow. Mm. And he said, what I detect here is an incredible anti-Semitism on Greg's part. Mm. Wow. He takes, he takes the faith of Israel and calls it a demonic lie. Mm. He takes the heritage of the Jewish people and says it's a, it's a Canaanite distortion of things. And he says, as a Jewish person, this is anti-Semitism at its worst. Mm. And I thought that really, really interesting because he does trash the history of Israel mm. yeah. in the, the Jewish heritage which of course is not just a negative heritage for, for sure. Right. And I'm intrigued to think that that needs to be taken seriously. Like, why are you doing this, Greg? Especially when he completely bypasses the judgment stuff that Jesus says. Yeah. And it's not just the Old Testament that Greg reads this way. It's the rest of the New Testament. Yeah. Mm. So he thinks Peter and Paul misinterpreted God too. Man. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying now is that the entirety of the Bible is untrustworthy. Yes. Uh, that's the that's a serious error in my judgment. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's the big reason that bringing up this topic was so interesting to us, just because if you're willing to kind of posit the idea that the scripture writers were at best uninformed hmm. or at worst were just flat out wrong, even though we're only talking about the depictions of, of violence or depictions of judgment. I know for me personally, that theory just makes me question the entire book of Exodus. And, and I start thinking, well, how did it really go? And yeah. I, I think a lot of, of danger comes from thinking about this may lead to an untrustworthy Bible in people's minds. Right. Mm. Yep. Uh, again, it's not just the Old Testament. I, when I'm looking at something in Romans 11.22, as Paul's finishing up that incredible section there, I... He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided your continuous kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Mm. You're talking about Gentiles there. <clears throat> well, the kindness of God always leads, always leads, Old and New Testament, but for those who reject the kindness of God, they're left with the serpent and will experience the severity 
prosperity of God. Greg thinks that verse is Paul misinterpreting this. And I think, gosh, if I can't trust Paul and Peter, I, I who can I trust? There's really nobody because mm-hmm. also if you look at it, a number of the gospel accounts are wrong too. Now to be sure, we don't have God killing Canaanites right. in the New Testament. <laughs> right. We only have that happening twice in the Old Testament. It's it's the Babylonians who are coming in and destroying Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, there is some killing, but then that happens in the New Testament. You got Ananias and Sapphira. You got right. people who in First Corinthians eleven who are not discerning the body, which means at the table, it's kind of a potluck for the church dinner, which they're going to do communion at. This is second half of 1 Corinthians 11. He says people are coming in. They're bringing their food to the common meal. The rich people are chowing down and getting drunk. Mm. And the poor people don't have enough to eat. And the rich people don't care. Mm. And God takes that extremely seriously and says, because of this, some of you are sick and some of you die. Mm. So here's Paul taking... The fact that there is a mortal punishment, a death penalty, if you will, Mm. for people who are practicing injustice, feeding themselves lavishly while the table next to them, the poor people, are are literally starving. Mm. So that's a New Testament depiction, not just an Old Testament depiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is just so interesting to see because... It feels like most of this conversation has been taking the stereotypes of the Old Testament of being angry, vengeful, mad at the world God and New Testament. Jesus is the the long hair, loving hippie, bringing peace to everyone. (laughs) And it's just kind of reversing all of that imagery. Why do you think it is that we miss the Mm. kindness of God in the Old Testament and miss the the justice of God in the New Testament? I, that's a really good question. When I do my Bible read-throughs, I find it really, really, really difficult to read through Second Samuel and First Second Kings. Yeah, me too. And then we got to do it again in Chronicles, <laughs> and <laughs> because it seemed like every time I turn around, God is mad, and I just I don't want the wrath of God. Yeah. But when I look what he's mad at, he's mad at the same stuff that makes me mad. But the thing that's surprising and the thing that somebody helped me see, Debbie Dodd, she's a missionary. She and Peter are missionaries in the Philippines and are in the Taiwan now. Debbie helped me see, you know, what happens here, Gary? Notice what happens in the midst of all this injustice and God being angry at rich people oppressing poor people. It only takes the slightest bit of repentance and God is showering blessing on everybody. That's his desire is to bless mm. obedient people. Right. Yeah. And and where I'd go from that is just this idea of motivation. Why is he angry? What's his motivation? Right. And the reality is, you know, God, he's so much more holy than us. He's so much more righteous than us. If his only motivation was just he's indignant that we're evil and he's good, that, that would make sense. But I do love that the picture that scripture seems to paint is he has this plan to save people and Israel doesn't get it. I feel like yeah. when they're in the wilderness and he's giving them these rules and regulations and the law that is meant to keep them alive and in good relationship with him, right. they don't see the big picture. They don't they don't really know what he's trying to do. And so in the moment it just looks like why is he dumping all these rules on us? Why is he, you know, punishing us? Yeah. But the reality is he does have this big picture where he is trying to save the world. And he's right. he's bringing this this nation of rebels along for the ride, and and they're a big part of it, but they don't get it. And so, I mean, I could see his frustration, like 
Yeah, yeah. Seeing the big picture, wanting to save the world, and and yet Israel is getting in the way of that constantly. So to me, it just frames mercy and compassion that he even put yeah. up with us in the first place the to character. to want to save us. So yeah, yeah. Some of the one of the things that avoid and others make a big deal of is uh, Matthew five, where it says, "You've heard uh, hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy." Hmm. And it's as if the Old Old Testament is telling everybody to hate their enemies. But in fact, in the Old Testament, is where you see love your neighbor mm. comes from Leviticus 16 or Leviticus 19. Yeah. And that's that's love the Lord your God is Deuteronomy 6. Mm. The Both are great commandments, but love your enemy. Uh, Exodus 23, 4 and 5 says, if your enemy's donkey is lost, take it back mm. to your enemy. Yeah. I mean, that's love your enemy. Yeah. It's like a new thing. And the picture that you love your enemy that's so incredibly powerful is in Second Kings 6, when Elisha is pretty confident and his servant says, look at all those enemies out there. We're in real trouble. And Elisha says, them that are with us are more than they them that are with them. And Elisha's servant is like, what are you talking about, Elisha? There's 180,000 of them and there's two of us. Mm-hmm. And Elisha opens his eyes and sees the hosts of heaven and then the 180,000 are are blinded. Right. And so let's go kill them quick. And I said, no, 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 don't go kill them. Mm. Let's let's bring food for them. Mm. So they come and mm. feed them and the people, you know, go home and they don't attack anymore. Yeah. So love your enemies is not just a New Testament concept as if it were hate your enemy in the Old Testament. Mm. The, the love your enemy is embedded in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. And, and it's almost as if God punishing sin, judging sin, protecting Israel so the the Messiah can be born, that is him right. loving his enemies. Absolutely. All throughout the Old Testament, God's violence and judgment against sin is in the service of enemy love, ultimately, when you look at the big picture. Yes. So. The reason that we got this idea of getting together with you was actually because of a a specific Bible story. I heard a sermon about Uzzah recently in Mm -hmm. uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and that's what just got my cylinders firing about all this stuff. So let's talk about that story, Uh, Brian. Mm -hmm. Do we have to? Do we have to? Let's do it. (laughs) The answer is yes, we do. (laughs) Brian, can you break down the story for us? Yeah, I I will say really quickly, one of my like pet favorite things to find out is what passages influential teachers are bothered by. I feel like that's just a window into understanding where the real complications of scripture are. So hearing oh. that second Samuel and, and the, the history books in that section uh, can be difficult in your read through. It's I, encouraging. I very much agree, but <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm not anti-bible when i'm reading this i'm like lord this is just difficult like i don't know so to hear other people saying this saying oh yeah i struggle with that too i think it's a a very helpful way (laughs) to to make people feel like their bible reading experience is a little bit more normal Hmm. so yeah let's let's talk about this difficult story (laughs) in second samuel 6 there's a moment where the Israelites are moving uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and by everything we see in this passage, it looks like they're doing it carefully, they're doing it respectfully. Early in the passage, it talks about they bring, 
you know, a new cart out for it. They're really putting everything they've got into trying to be as careful and respectful with the Ark of God as possible. And Mm -hmm. basically, it seems along the way, they come to a spot where the oxen who are carrying it, they, they get a little unsteady, they trip up, they run into something. And it may look for a moment like the Ark is about to, to fall or hit the ground or something like that. And uh, our, our good boy Uzza decides that he's going he's gonna to try to help. He's going to put his hand out. He's going to steady the Ark of the Covenant, which seems like a, a natural, helpful respect for the kingdom reaction. I would probably do it. I, I would. Na- I feel like you would naturally <laughs> if I'm do honest. it. Yeah, I mean, it feels like if you're, if you're just the like holy in, box is falling. Yeah, like even, what are you gonna do? Yeah, even just the natural yeah. response to like if you're walking in a mall and like a two-year-old kid is walking by and they look like they're about to fall, they may not be your kid, but you just right. naturally put your hand out and think Absolutely. I'm gonna try and keep something, right. someone from being hurt, or I'm gonna keep something. Yeah. It, from and falling for, for, on the ground. For listeners who don't know, the Ark of the Covenant was this box that was supposed to contain the presence of God. So just keep that in mind. It wasn't like a box of scrolls or food. It was the box. It was God's home. It was the box where God lived mm-hmm. and it was falling. So yeah, keep going, Brian. So we see this moment where the, the Ark becomes unsteady, puts his hand out to, to stop it. And where things get really kind of troubling in the passage is verse seven, because from there, all we see is God becomes angry at him and he is struck dead there. It, it tells us because of his error and yeah. it gets really difficult to see where his error was or why God would be so upset about that. We even actually see yeah. in the next verse, David seems upset at God for this angry outburst. And I think as many modern readers, we, we kind of join in with David and we think, what? why did this need to happen? And that's what yeah. we've come to ask you. Why did this need to happen? <laughs> Why did he need to die? Is the first question in this. Well, ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. This, I mean, if you if you're not troubled by the story, you're not reading the Bible, right? I mean, let's be honest. This is a what the heck's, you know. I've got two responses to Bible stories in general. One of them is what? <laughs> this is one of those. Yeah, and, and the other is huh. You know, just those are my two common responses to Bible stuff, and and this is a what, <laughs> an angry what actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm with David all the way around, but what I have to do, like in a lot of these things, I have to come back and put it in a context. Mm. So back three, they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Benadab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these these two guys, the sons, were driving the cart with the Ark. And you think, well, that's nice. You've got a nice new cart and all that kind of stuff. But if you go back to Numbers chapter 4, uh, where God is setting this thing up with the with the ark, it's talking about when the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain. They are to cover the curtain with a durable cloth, that sort of thing, and give some very specific kinds of things. And then it says specifically that the people are to carry the ark. Hmm. There's actually rings on the ark, and they put two thick poles through it and then carry the ark specifically so that it will not fall off of a cart. Right. 
So when David does this on a cart, he is completely disrespecting and not believing what God said to do, which is to protect the ark. Not, which not is, following the exact instruction. He's, he's not, yeah. he is either through incredible neglect or just deliberate disobedience, I don't know. Maybe just oh, a cart would be fine. It'd be allows you to have a bunch of guys carry it. Right. And besides, we can have a bigger celebration. So he's completely disregarding what God has said because the ark is super special. I mean, the fun story is when the ark goes into the temple of Dagon, when the Philistines capture the ark, you know, Dagon keeps falling on his face in mm. front of the ark. Yeah. This is a special thing. And we treat something very special as if it's common. That's to insult the one. Mm. And to insult Yahweh, he takes it quite seriously, especially when it's David. Yeah. The, the... Now, the question is, why in the world does Uzzah get zapped? <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. get David. Get whoever's the commander that put this thing on a cart in the first place, which apparently is not Uzzah. Right. So, yeah, this doesn't explain everything. But the the problem, the error, is back in verse 3, mm. not when Uzzah tries to steady the ark when the cart is shaking. That's why you're not supposed to have it a cart in the first place. You treat the ark as something special. Yeah. And they're treating it just like a bale of hay. Right. And, and the pastor I heard preach the sermon that got me thinking on this mentioned that the guys operating the cart weren't even Levites. So that's correct. It's another. Yeah. Basically, yeah. the way this pastor, the way he framed it was Uzzah wasn't the problem. Uzzah basically took one for the team. He <laughs> he was the the target of God's wrath in that moment because it was yeah. the straw that broke the camel's back of all of these different rules uh, being broken. The, the way that God intended things to be done. But here's why this becomes problematic for me. So, you know, someone who reads the Old Testament, not the way Boyd does, but as reading the Old Testament like it's an actual trustworthy historic narrative right. as opposed to the, the view that Boyd and others put out where the Old Testament writers somehow depict God incorrectly. So he would say, you know, oh, this wasn't God. It, he just had a heart attack when he touched the, the ark and they blamed it on God and said it was God who killed him. But this is a challenging passage if we take it literally because if the text would have said the reason Uzzah died was because he got too close to the holiness of God, that would actually work for me. You know, it's like that Bible project video where they depict God as the sun and he's holy. If you get too close mm -hmm. to him, you're, you're destroyed. That makes sense. But, you know, God has these rules, right? If, if that was the case, if it was just he got too close to God's holiness, it would make sense that the rules about the ark are from a compassionate God giving precaution. You know, don't touch the ark. You can't handle what you'll be exposed to if you do. But the text actually just tells us that God got angry. Like, Almost as simply as, hey, I said not to do that. You did it. Now you die. It's kind of this very brutal framing. Mm -hmm. And I've heard pastors try to frame it as, you know, Uzzah just didn't have respect for the Lord. And the application of the sermon is, you know, we need to make sure we have respect for the Lord. But to me, it doesn't make sense because Uzzah's trying to help. Like, you know, his, in correct. his intentions are reverent. His intentions are reverent. Oh, man, the ark yep. is going to fall on the ground. I, I need to steady it, you know. I'm with you. I mean, this is a troubling story. Mm. I'm not going to pretend at all. <laughs> I'm a good, I'm with you. I the whoever the team captain is that put that arc on the cart is the guy that should have taken the shot. Right. As as the story is told, Uzzah is the he just he's a servant. He's just an ordinary guy. He's not a captain. Right. I, and he's he's there. With the two guys are just 
carrying it along or walking beside the cart uh, and he when when the uh, it's when the shakes he's he's the guy that ends up it for the team like you say right there's a certain sense in which again you see the mercy of God that is only us but still it's the it seems to be mm, yeah uh, well cuz da- David David is Jesus is from the line of David so if David gets taken mm. out who can't be born right so maybe that's mercy you know maybe it's David's got seven brothers we could do something else but yeah <laughs> I, I mean it's that's true hmm. yeah I, it, yeah this is a troubling story i don't want to downplay it hmm. But the reason behind it is, are you respecting uh, God or are you insulting God? And this is the context of insult. Mm. Uh, And we need to be careful not to insult God then and now. Mm -hmm. So I think... I think for me, the biggest issue in this is continuity and consistency. And I think this is where a lot of skeptics go. The idea of how, how can this God actually be the same? So if I'm thinking of Jesus, again, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe Jesus was present during the flood as part of the Trinity. So I don't think that Jesus's hands are free of blood. If, if, you know, I think the framework in my mind I've been putting up is this, this grace and mercy and compassion of a God who has a plan to rescue and redeem. But this moment with Uzzah to me seems like it's disconnected from that plan because it seems like the reality was they didn't follow instructions and that's why somebody died. And when I think of Jesus, you know, let's say Jesus wanted something transported and he told Peter and James and John to do it. And they, he gave them really detailed instructions. You go here and you do this and you set it up this way. And Peter fails to follow the instructions to the letter. And then Jesus vaporizes him or stabs him with a knife. Like, I just can't connect those dots in my mind. That's that's why this is so troubling to me, because it seems so different from Jesus. It doesn't seem yeah. like God was protecting anyone uh, or saving anyone in that moment. It just seemed like he got mad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's this is a place where the wrath of God breaks out, and uh, that that the phrase there, the name of the place, uh, is ordered broken out against Uzzah, so they called it Breakout Uzzah to this day, because mm. uh, Perez is breakout. There's a there's a word play there. The wrath broke out, uh, mm. and and David's afraid. Gosh, I'm going to be stored of things of God. I might get vaporized too, mm. and he's actually right. Mm. Uh, he should have kept that in mind because a little while later he's going to disrespect God mm. and God's going to take it really seriously. Yeah. And only because he said, I've sinned against the Lord, Second Samuel 12, does he not get killed? Mm. Mm. His repentance. And uh, Uzzah, unfortunately, didn't have a chance to repent. I think he would have repented really fast. Yeah, it's a troubling story. It's not the only place. You know, First Corinthians 11, people are disrespecting God in chowing down while the table next door is starving and because this some of you're sick and some of you're dead yeah so, yeah but it doesn't name some innocent guy there right maybe this is the the teenage boy of the parents who are rich mm. and the he gets zapped i don't know we don't have the thing there mm. but the mm. idea of god uh, killing people the sin unto death first john 5 calls it 
There's a sin unto death all the way through scripture, it seems to me. It's not commonly done. Hmm. But Uzzah, he appears like a just innocent guy. Why him? You know, go go get the the, the captain of the cart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the troubling ideas as we've been hitting on. And I think even one of the things that gets really difficult is trying to either teach this passage or trying to personally apply this passage. Because I, I know that I've definitely sat through teachings and, and possibly even done this with my own former youth group students where the idea that I end up pulling from it is, hey, respect God or he'll kill you. And and like, I, <laughs> yeah. I know that that's something that people can end up taking from the passage. And I, is that something that we we should think? I mean, definitely the there should be great reverence and respect for God, but I don't think God wants us living a life where you're afraid that if you drop your Bible on the ground, he may have his wrath break out against you in this same way. Like, how, yeah, how can we kind of pull these lessons of, of reverence for God into our modern day? Because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a depiction of God that seems to stand in total counter. It, it, it just counters the idea of the age of grace and the mercy of the cross and how it's this idea that we don't have to die for our sins anymore because someone else already did. That, well, but see, again, that's pushing a little bit too far. The people mm. in 1 Corinthians 11 right. you, yeah, apparently yeah. are believers, mm. and they are insulting God, and some end up dead. Mm. The First John 5 picture, there's a son unto death. Mm. Uh, I, grace means God helps, and the picture of God's grace as he lets us off is actually the wrong picture of grace. Mm. God always takes sin seriously. Right. God helps us redeem from brokenness and sin and shame. That's grace that we don't have to buy him off the way you do the other gods. You know, go try to, why is it that when you go into an Asian or, you know, a Thai place, (laughs) there's always altars all over the place because you've got to buy the favor of the God. Otherwise, your business won't flourish. Right. You go Mm -hmm. in the contrast between a Christian restaurant and a Buddhist restaurant is there be no altar in a Christian restaurant because we respect God and and the favor comes free. We don't have to buy it. Mm. The, so I, I, Francis Chan just did his thing at Azusa Pacific here, oh, I don't know how long, not very long ago, and talked about we need to bring the fear of God back into our thinking. Because we've had so much, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, right. <laughs> and God is my buddy up in the sky. No, he is God, and he takes... Uh, he takes sin very seriously. Hmm. And we, oh, grace, he's a God of grace. It's okay. His job is to forgive. My job is to sin, so I have something to forgive. And, of course, that's not the picture at all. Hmm. He will help me be freed from my own personal sinful habits, and he'll help me free from the consequences of other people's sins. Hmm. But that's what grace is. He helps us be empowered to do good things. And would you say that... These depictions of God unleashing his wrath in a direct kill are the, they're not the norm. No, and it, clearly not the norm. Because I, I do believe that the wrath of God is something that's very real. But I mm-hmm. think that his overarching motivation is a desire to save, a desire to rescue and redeem. Yes. And when it comes to wrath in the modern context in people's lives, even in Christians' lives, I think a lot of times the way that we see that happening is not God directly inflicting something on someone, but God giving someone over to their wicked desires and letting it consume them. Because 
That's correct. They're pushing back. They're rebelling. They're rebelling. You know, it's the it's the Christian who goes back into drugs and just keeps going into it and, and resisting the Holy Spirit, convicting them. And God eventually just says, "Okay, I'm going to let you experience this for a right. while." Uh, and yep. and that is wrath, but it's not wrath as in this angry God who hates the sinner. It's it's God allowing the sinner to experience that wrath so that they can then realize their need for grace. And again, going back to Uzzah, in my mind, just thinking now, you know, I think that God was angry in the moment at what was going on, but that doesn't mean that he still wasn't loving Israel. And it's mercy right. that only Uzzah died and not everyone else did. It's mercy that, right. that Jesus was eventually born. And I, that's kind of how I'm having it put together. Because to, to me, when it comes to these stories of wrath, I mean, the hardest place to go to is really the flood. But it's it's honestly kind of an easy start to frame it because... If you believe that the flood is true, that means that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at one point took out everybody except one family. And it's easy to gloss that over. That's way worse than Uzzah in the sense of the death count and the toll. But just keeping in mind that consistency of this is a God who, yes, punishes sin, but desperately wants to free sinners from sin and create a bridge Mm -hmm. for them to cross over. So that's, that's just some of the ways I have to think through it to make it work, you know? Yeah, that's well said, Aaron. The thing I find a lot of times is that for we here in the United States, we just don't take evil seriously. Evil is a laugh line. Yeah. Oh man, that was evil. Yeah. And the the picture, I I work with folk in East Congo now, and the the rebels, as they're called, there's a group of them, and there are groups of them, and it's just routine for people to be taken, to be kidnapped, to be gang raped, mm. to be tortured unbelievably. They, right now, the churches are not even daring to gather in East Congo because they become targets. Uh, and we can't even imagine that sort of thing. Wow. And that, you know, those are the kinds of things because we live in a place where, you know, the ding, we, I go to bed at night and I never worry about having somebody burn my house in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. Yeah, never. Uh, when I'm living in East Congo, you know, I, my house could be raided at any moment. My wife kidnapped and held for ransom. If I don't Man. come up with a huge amount of money, you know, they will rape her and torture her and mm. send me back pieces. Yeah. Uh, and the evil, I mean, I see evil. I, I work with stuff where I see direct evil. Yeah. But most people never see it. You have to be a police officer or something to see, or a social worker mm. to even begin to see the levels of evil. And so we say, oh, just be nice to everybody. Mm. You know, give peace a chance. Well, there's a there's a we're under command of God to act to stop evil from happening. Mm. And while I think vengeance is never the right thing to do, this is my non my pacifism speaking. (laughs) Vengeance is clearly spoken against Old Testament and new and the vengeful spirit. You get me, man, I'm getting you. That's Lamech. Yeah. And we're to lead with kindness and mercy. But we're also supposed to protect the, the innocent. Right. And there's a difference between shedding guilty blood and sharing innocent blood. Mm. Now, I'm not a, I'm, again, I'm a pacifist. Yeah. I think overcoming evil is good, but I think there are times when you have to use force to stop evil. And I think that's true for God, too. There's some of this idea that God could just reach in and do something magic and everybody's suddenly going to become nice. Yeah. And uh, he, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I, uh, there's, yeah. we have to stop evil. The best way to do it is by good, and that's God's primary way of doing it. Right. But it's not the only way that he mm-hmm. does it. Right. And 
So I would consider myself uh, a proponent of, I, I don't usually use the word pacifism just because of the reaction it gets from people, but yeah, the ethic of Christocentric nonviolence. And you've been a huge influence in that, Preston Sprinkle, some other guys. But I would tend to agree, it's not a pacifism of sitting by and letting evil happen. Right. It's a commitment to not take the life of other humans, especially when you consider the role of the Christian being given with the Great Commission to go and make disciples. That's our role. Christians are not the same as Old Testament ethnic Israel. We're not called to go right. and arm ourselves up and go take over other nations and make them Christian nations. We're called to spread the gospel and even be willing to die if if necessary. That's correct. But I totally agree with you. There's times where, you know, if, if I see an old woman being beat up in the street, my I want to help her. My my intention is not going to be to kill the people who are beating her, but I want to stop them. And and that's correct. And sometimes fists are necessary in those kind of situations. And so going back to the heart of God, again, he's protecting something throughout this whole story. I mean, even if we look at it that way, the story of Uzzah, what is he protecting in that moment? He wants Israel to take him seriously, not just because, you know, he feels entitled to that, which he has every right to, but if Israel doesn't Mm -hmm. take him seriously, the the mission is not going to be completed. And so it seems like this story of Uzzah, I mean, if you go through the journey of Israel through Exodus um, and through the desert, there's so many more situations where this happens, where they don't take God seriously and they're punished with sickness or death. This may be a little bit off topic, but can I bring us back to a verse that you had mentioned uh, a little bit earlier? Sure. You mentioned 1 John 5 and the sin leading to death. Yep. And I got really excited when you did because (laughs) I have been horribly confused by this passage for 10 years. And I have shown it to youth group students to kind of show them, hey, I'm still a student of scripture. And then they're like, Mm. yeah, but what does it mean? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I'm just so (laughs) deeply lost when it comes to this passage. So to read the two verses, this is 1 John 5, uh, 16 and 17. It says, if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he being God will give life to him for those who commit sin, not leading to death there is a sin leading to death, I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. What in the world? That That yeah. is a what, what passage for me, especially the idea of if someone is leading, is, pre, is sinning in a way that is leading to death, don't pray for them, let them die? Like, is that what... What is happening? I'm so confused. Yeah. Well, wow. of course, John speaks in blacks and mm-hmm. whites. Uh, he's the same one that the next verse is going to say the Christian never sin. Uh, verse 18, everyone who's born of God does not sin. It's often translated as does not keep on sinning, but that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's saying that the born of God person does not sin. He's speaking in blacks and whites. Mm. And what you're saying here is... Um, I'll use the I'll use a sex abuser for example. I'm, I've got a specific thing in mind that I'm involved in the process. Mm. If somebody is is committed sex abuse against the children, yeah. and they're hit for prison, there's a sense in which I do not pray for them because they need to go to prison. Mm. You're not praying against the punishment. You're not That's you're correct. not saying God spare I'm them. I'm praying God release him yeah. from punishment. Mm-hmm. I am praying that he'll meet a, meet God and become a 
you know, a, a Jesus follower in jail, mm. uh, but I am not praying. This is my interpretation. Mm. Mm. I'm not praying that he will not go to jail. Yeah, because okay. he should go yeah. to jail. So, like in so, Acts, so, we, yeah. So, ahead, step over you. In Acts, we see moments where like Peter and John are in prison for preaching mm. the gospel. They get released from it. And they go to the prayer meeting where everyone is asking, Lord, please deliver them. You're saying that kind of yep. prayer meeting is not appropriate for someone in that kind of a situation. Okay. Yeah. For somebody who deserves to be in jail, I'm not going to pray to be spared the punishment. Mm. Mm. So so then to follow that to a more modern context, and I think we brought up Hitler on our last podcast with you. We're on brand. <laughs> but it's just everyone uses Hitler in these conversations. But, you know, yeah. if Hitler is just unrepentant, killing Jews, doing the things that Hitler does, and they're sending a bomb squad to drop bombs on him. We're not praying, oh God, spare Hitler that he wouldn't die from the bombs. We're, is that kind of where we're going with it? Like, Oh yeah, okay, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. In fact, I go the other direction. I pray that God will break the hand of the sex abuser. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I, I pray imprecatory prayers as the New Testament does, uh, but I also if I were given a chance, you know, I would, I, I hope I would give my life that this person might become aware of the reality of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's where the radical grace comes yeah. in. It's like yep. you can pray for their hand to be broken, but you're also praying for their soul to be restored and yep. healed. Mm-hmm. And I have to have both attitudes at the same time. Yeah. So so that yeah. speaks to the, the prayer part of the verse. Then, then would you describe the sin leading unto death? as something like Uzzah, as something that would lead to like a government handing down a death penalty or something like that? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Mm. Now, death penalty is not common here, but it was certainly common in the first century mm. world. Right. And there is a uh, um, there is a, a sin that leads to death, uh, and to pray that the penalty would be omitted, I, I think we're not to pray for mm. that. Okay. Does that cover it, Brian? That is a very helpful summation of it. I, I've heard different mm. bits and pieces of that, but not all together. And and even when I've heard them, I, I've naturally leaned on the side of, okay, Lord, I, I still think you want me to pray for people. And if, if I'm going to fall mm-hmm. in the wrong on any side, I would rather have prayed for too many people than have not prayed for enough people. So, <laughs> and and I've taught you, people yeah, that I'm as totally well. Of like, hey, if you think that maybe God doesn't want you to pray a certain thing, just pray it anyway and he'll see your heart and then ask him to guide you to what that right prayer is. So yeah, that's, that's very yeah. helpful. Thank you for that. You know, you know, it's so funny. I was talking to a young believer recently and they were saying, you know, man, I don't, I don't really listen to a lot of Bible teachers or read commentaries. The Bible is just so clear. I just, I just read it and I just, oh my gosh, I just understand what it <laughs> means perfectly. And I was just like, are we reading the same book? And we're, we're, <laughs> We were talking about a passage that seems super clear. And I was like, you know that scholars have like seven different interpretations on that. She's like, what? what? Like, no, it just says what it says. But it's so easy. So, yeah. It's just, it's obvious. Yeah. You just read it in English yeah. the way it was written. Yeah, we, exactly. King James English. Yeah, yeah. that that's the way God intended The it. real Bible. Um, <laughs> let's do an episode on that one day. Sure. Make a lot of people mad. That'd be great. <laughs> So the last thing to talk about today is Ananias and Sapphira. I feel like we've covered a lot of things in the other things we've talked about that touch on this, but let's just, let's just get through it. Ananias and Sapphira. Here's the story. 
It's a couple after Jesus resurrects. It's the early church. It's the apostles and the early church sharing their money, sharing their possessions. It's a great time. And many people are selling their land to give and help this new gospel mission of the church. There's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. We have every indication that they were, they were probably Christians, right? Oh, I think they were. Christ followers, yeah. So there's this yeah. couple in the church. They want to jump on board. They want to get involved in this program of selling land and giving to the church to help. So they sell their land, but then they lie. They, they keep some of the money for themselves. They go to the church and they frame it to look more generous as, hey, we sold our land and we're giving everything. There's this dramatic moment where Peter calls them out and says, why have you done this? You, you haven't just lied to men. You lied to God. And then it says they drop dead and are carried out. Is that like an accurate summation of the story? Yeah. Okay. So here's my question. I think the story is weird. <laughs> I think it's really weird. I, I think if I reframe it in modern context, again, if I'm in church and somebody walks up to the pastor and says, hey, I donated this much. And really they donated like, you know, less than that. And then they fall dead. It, it's just so bizarre to me. Um, the question I go to is, you know, did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I I specifically remember teaching this to my students and I was studying and I came across Boyd and I, I actually liked his interpretation on this. He said, I believe if I'm quoting him right, that it wasn't God that killed Ananias and Sapphira. It was actually, it was Satan. He, he consumed them in the moment. Basically a sin that most people commit on a regular basis, lying instead of the, the natural repercussions. It was like the, the ultimate repercussion death. God allowed it to happen, but it wasn't a direct act of vengeance like it was mm -hmm. with the Uzzah situation. I don't know. What do you think, Gary? I I think to say it's Satan's one killed him is just uh, ludicrous. Man, I taught the sermon wrong then. <laughs> Dang yeah. Got to delete that one I, from the archives. Yeah. It, Peter does say, why has Satan filled your heart with the light of the Holy Spirit? Hmm. That's what he does. He promotes sin and such. And these guys dying the way they are promotes a huge revival. Right. We'll start taking God seriously. So the outcome of this is exactly the opposite of what Satan's agenda is. <laughs> That's now, true. possibly, <laughs> yeah. you know, Satan just didn't understand the deeper magic to use C.S. Lewis phrases. But no, I think the idea that this is Satan doing it, the whole tenor of the story, though it never says God killed them. Yeah, the whole right. tenor of the story is this is God's judgment upon this hypocrisy and lying. And when I try to puff myself up through lies, that is a gross evil. Mm. And that's what they're doing, right. is puffing themselves. And Peter makes it very clear, you had no obligation to do anything. Right. You could have given us 80% and it would have been fine. Yeah, just tell us mm. the truth. Yeah. Mm. But when you're pumping yourself uh, at the expense of the truth, this is a serious error. And in this time, and it often happens, it sometimes happens first time through, uh, God reacts much more strongly uh, than he does at other times. Right. And hmm. is it is it, can we make the parallel between Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira where it seems like the point God is trying to make is it's this exception to the rule of instant judgment for somebody because he wants Israel in the Old Testament and the newly minted Christian church in the New Testament to take him seriously. He doesn't, yep. he doesn't want them to have cheap grace. He wants them to have 
a grace with this understanding of, hey, it's not just, you know, this free hall pass. I'm trying to help you get better. I'm trying to help you grow out of your sin. I don't want there to be just this full embrace of sin within the Christian church, right? Yep. Hmm. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing in Hebrews 10, where it says the one who uh, has experienced the new covenant uh, and then keeps on deliberately sinning. Yeah. They face nothing but the wrath of God. I think the background of that phrase, that place is the Babylonian captivity. Hmm. But it, again, it's that same point that if you are acting with deliberate deception, deliberate insult to God, deliberate hurting the other people in the body, uh, you face the reality that you may face the wrath of God full on. Hmm. Hmm. Now, this is not go to hell type wrath if you're a Christian, yeah. uh, but it, it can certainly be Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. I do think Ananias and Sapphira in heaven, hmm. but it... They, like Uzzah, they, they took one for the team. Well, in their case, they were one doing it. Oh, true. Mm-hmm. They're not innocent. Uzzah appears to be innocent. Ananias and Sapphira are the perpetrators. But what I mean by that, by took one for the team, is I'm sure in the years to follow, other people lied at church, and they didn't oh, drop absolutely. Dead. Yeah, and they don't drop dead. But God made an example out of them. I think yep. that's the hardest thing about this story for me, is sometimes... I think just the way that we frame the Bible when we preach it and teach it and talk about it is there's heroes and villains. And so Ananias and Sapphira get classified in the villain category when in my mind, these are Christians who just had a moment of humanity where their pride and their ego and their desire to be self-important and seen as more more holy got in the way and it leads to their death. Why then do we have megachurch preachers who are sleeping with their secretaries and leading these massive churches and not dropping dead? You know, that, yeah. that's the disconnect for me. Is, it's, it, is it a rule or is it just God sometimes makes these it's, exceptions? Yeah, I, I have a specific pastor mind hmm. who was so evil that he was actually groping people in the baptistry. Hmm. And this was a pattern of stuff. Yeah. And he ended up losing the church, I'm glad to say. And I don't know where he's at today, but that's one that, you know, to, you know, as he's starting, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and clunk, and he's dead. I, I, you know, just blows up right there in the tank. Oh, that's fine with me. That happened or, or no? No, he didn't. Okay. But he got exposed. No, he did. He was groping people in the baptistry. Right. But he, he got exposed and he lost his church and all yep. that. Okay. So that's that's yep. one version of God's wrath. It's not death, but it's... Uh, yep. But it wasn't nearly severe enough in my judgment. He walked away with a good bit of money. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, his reputation shot. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what he's doing now. Mm. But that is just so gross evil. Why in the world would God tolerate that if he won't, if he doesn't tolerate an essence of Sapphira? And that's my thing, yeah. is how long, oh Lord? Right. It's actually the, I'm with Jonah. Why in the world do you forgive those Ninevites? Don't you know how evil they are, God? Right. You know, a moment of repentance and you're blessing them. Stop it. Kill them. Right. Now, I, Jonah's a little bit out of hand, but I'm actually with Jonah. Yeah. God, you can't let this go on. Yeah, but then we see God's, incredible mercy that's scandalous by our by our standard i think that's probably the hardest thing but also as i'm thinking through it what's starting to make sense is we want god to adhere to a set of rules that we give him where it's oh yeah Yeah. if you do this you die and if you do this you live and these are the boxes you check and you're okay and if you don't check these boxes you're bad and you you die and yet 
God seems to work outside of any of our paradigms where yep. it's totally up to him what he wants to do. If he wants to, if I go out tomorrow, even though I'm, even though I'm a Christian and I lie to somebody, he wants to strike me dead. He, he has the right to do that. And by God's yep. grace, I'll show up in heaven and I'm not going to be mad at him. I'm just going to be thankful to be in heaven uh, mm-hmm. and for that grace. And if he wants to let evil continue in certain ways for a purpose, we have to be accepting of that as well, that he knows best. And I remember in the Bible Project video about atonement, they were talking about, you know, if God is just, why doesn't he just wipe out all evil? And the point being made was, well, if he did, he'd have to wipe out all of us because yep. because we are evil. So, yep. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad he didn't wipe me out, but I think he should wipe out that guy next door to me that is annoying me with his music. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> being facetious about that yeah i know <laughs> there are absolutely people i think god should wipe out yeah for the sake of the world it, yeah mm. Mm. one of the thoughts that i have had to try to explain some of these passages in my mind. And I, I, we've kind of touched on this, but to try and like hit on it a little bit more directly. I know that one of the ways that I justify, for example, the book of Job in my mind mm-hmm. is, Hey, at least we're still talking about him. Like, <laughs> you know, thousands and thousands of years of people have been able to learn from his example. And, and so sometimes I, I try to look at these moments of what seems like God's outbursting of anger or what seems like wrath coming down on someone when that's not the normal way that God goes about it. And I try to at least look for, well, if hundreds and hundreds of years of the church can learn from these examples, then then maybe that is at least in some way redeemable. And, and therefore it, it kind of becomes more acceptable that that God goes a little bit harsher in those moments. Is that just me trying to fit God into a paradigm that makes sense to me? Should, should I do more just yep. to come back to, Nope, you're really God. You should be, you should be outraged by the book of Job. Hmm. Hmm. At least I yeah. am. I never mention the book without saying I hate the book. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. And I learn a lot from it, but it's just absolutely intolerable that God would say yes to Satan a second time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, man, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah, that's such a... <laughs> well, yeah, that's another that's, episode. That's, that's not today. <laughs> Job, yeah. man. You know, I, I think of um, just going back to that thought of consistency and wanting God to always do things certain ways and certain times and how things are different at other times. Even in my own, my own raising by my dad, there was so many times where I deserved punishment and I got it. And then there were other times where I fully deserved punishment and he just showed me mercy and grace in those moments. And it's, it's not like he had a set of rules where he was following that if it came out of his heart. And I think, I think a lot of times we want God to be this systematic creature, but really he, he is a living real person and yeah, he can make choices and he doesn't have to follow a set of rules. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing that has, it's genuinely been rattling around in my mind since the last time we, uh, recorded an episode together, the three of us. I remember you defined sovereignty of God as He is accountable to no one and does what He wants. And That's that wow. it's a scary definition to try to get to, and and to be able to just look at passages in Scripture or look at situations in life and 
just have to say, yeah, Lord, I won't understand this, but you're God and, and you get to do this. I know that I've been trying more and more to get to that place in King surrounding all of these areas. I have one quick follow-up to something that you said. Okay. Gary, when you, yeah. when you say God doesn't control everything, fleshing that out, is that more along the lines of when we say God is in control, he's got this big picture plan. He is manipulating things behind the scenes to accomplish that plan. But when we say, when people say God controls everything, that could be a misstatement because when someone gets stricken with cancer or somebody rapes somebody, it's God is not pulling those puppet strings, making that happen. Right. Is that kind of, well, it depends on your view. Yeah. If you're meticulous providence that's ordained by God, yeah, it's evil, but God is using that evil to accomplish a greater purpose. Mm. So the evil is planned and purposed by God. I don't think that's true. Right. I think there are things that are against God's will in every sense. Yeah. Todd, Miles and I do a course on providence and prayer, and he's one of those dang Calvinists, and I'm a godly Calminian. <laughs> and we get pretty intent about each other, love each other, respect each other, but we discern big time on that. Yeah, right. And so when we say that God is in control, but he's not in control of everything, is that a paradigm that he created? Did he set it up that way where he is in control big picture, but then he's allowed these free agents called humans and angels and demons who are able yeah. to operate. Yeah, I, the the Bible never uses the phrase God is in control. Hmm. Uh, control is more a picture of a scientific worldview than a personal worldview. Right. Uh, but to use that, I think what it means is God sets up the values and the paradigms and the regulations, if you will, and he enforces them. Mm, okay. And what that means is that when we say God is in control, it means at the end of the day, you face the, you face God and you'll face either the lion or the lamb. Mm, wow. It's your choice about which one you face. You don't have the choice to avoid the judgment. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's what I mean by God being in control. That's great. It's not that he's telling sinners, yeah, go ahead and sin because I will serve my greater glory. Though sometimes that's true. Right. Crucifixion, for example. Right. It's more, uh, you will face me. Mm. Matthew 25. Wow. That's all really good. And it's your choice, lion or lamb. And his desire is that you would face the lamb. Yeah. You know, may deserve the lion. Wow. Mm. But you'll get one or the other. Wow. Yeah, that's so good. That's That's a good place to end it, I think. It's really, really good. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. I think we just got the whole Bible figured out. Yeah, we solved it. <laughs> we solved it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. What a great, amazing discussion. We just learned so much from Gary. I was so encouraged. These are questions that... For me, I've been rattling around in my brain for years, and it was so good to talk through them with Gary. And I love his heart and posture to not say, let's solve all the problems, let's find the perfect answers, but just being willing to wrestle through scripture with us. Brian and I appreciate that so much, and we just hope that you did as well. If you want to know more about Gary Bashir's, 
look him up online. He has so many amazing and free classes and books and sermons and YouTube videos. His website, brashears.net, has so many great resources and things that he's written. That's B-R-E-S-H-E-A-R-S.net. Go ahead and check that out. You won't be sorry. If you like our show, listen, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io slash support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.